By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. Hey friends, and welcome back to Deep Dive, the weekly podcast where it's my immense pleasure to sit down with entrepreneurs and authors and academics and creators and other inspiring people and we find out how they got to where they are and the strategies and tools we can learn from them to help them build a life that we love. This episode is the end of season six of the podcast. We have been live and active for about two years now, I think just over two years, which is awesome. And the podcast has been growing a lot. So thank you so much to everyone who has subscribed to the channel on YouTube or is listening on podcast platforms or is sharing it with friends. And this month has just passed, August 2023 has been our biggest month ever in terms of downloads. So that's really, really amazing to see. And a huge thank you to everyone who's also part of our Telegram community, The Deep Divers. This is a totally free Telegram community where we post the behind the scenes of what's going on in the podcast. And when we have particular guests coming on, we'll post in the Telegram community and get questions from the audience on Telegram. And then I'll ask the guest those questions that we collect from the Telegram community. So if you're interested in joining that, it's completely free. There'll be a link in the video description or in the show notes. But this is our somewhat usual end of season wrap up episode. So we've talked about so much stuff this season. We've talked about perfectionism, financial freedom, writing and advice, how to build a business. We've talked about mental health. We've talked about setting goals. We've talked about manifestation even. But one thing that's particularly stood out for me this season is the number of skills that the guests seem to have that they've shared with us here on the podcast. And so in this roundup episode, I want to share five of the top skills that I've personally learned from the guests this season. For each one, I'll give a little bit of an introduction and then we'll play the relevant segment from that podcast episode. So if for whatever reason you might have missed every single episode of the season, or even if you've been very kind enough to listen to them all, you'll hopefully get some value from this episode because this is a reminder of some of the most important takeaways. Uh, at least for me, from the podcast, and I hope you'll find them helpful as well. Final quick little mention before we get onto the episode itself is you might have known, you might know, you might not know that I have written a book. It's called Feel Good Productivity. It's about how to do more of what matters to you. It's being officially published in December of 2023, but if you're watching this before then, then I would love it if you could pre-order the book, please. There'll be some really exciting bonuses if you do pre-order the book, because pre-ordering the book means you'd be doing me a favor, and it's just great for everything in terms of book promotion and all that kind of fun stuff. So if you've gotten value from this podcast or from my content over the years, I'd really appreciate it if you could pre-order the book. And if you hold on to your email receipt or physical receipt or whatever, then we'll be announcing more details of the very exciting bonuses that we've got coming up just for people who pre-order. Okay, so let's get on with this episode. So first up, we have the money expert, Cody Sanchez, and Cody is teaching us how we can maximize our wealth and our money over time. Your first $100,000 comes faster if you earn before you invest. Yeah, too many people want to take a dollar and invest it in the stock market and have a Robin Hood trade do well for them or a Bitcoin go up or down or an NFT. And I think it's completely wrong. You should optimize first. We have a strategy called learn, um, which is basically we want you to focus first on earning money before you do anything. And the reason why is because you can't, uh, if you have money, it's always easier to make money. Rule number one, in order to make money, you have to first do the thing that is easiest and highest ROI. That's typically not going to be that you put a dollar into the stock market and it makes you $100,000. But what you could do is you could negotiate a salary increase of 5 to 20% each year or biannually, and you're much more likely to then be able to invest that money intelligently. But a lot of people, you know, instead of first earning and then learning and then investing, they go invest, learn, earn. And I think that's the opposite of what we want to do. Too many people have seen people make a lot of money in investing, and it's a long game. Yeah, yeah, I think that's so true. It's like uh, sometimes I'll I'll get friends asking me like, "Hey, you know, uh, you're you're into investing. Like, what should I invest my money in?" And I'm like, 
Hmm. <laughs> the easy answer is S&P 500. But yeah. I, I think that's not actually the answer. Like, what's the goal here? Let's figure this out. And then, you know, find out that, oh, they'd love to become financially independent or they'd love to have an extra few thousand dollars a month to kind of, I don't know, go on holiday or, or whatever the thing might be. I'm, I'm like, okay, so if we, if we, if you continue investing in the S&P 500, you'll get there maybe 30 years from now. Yep. Is that what you want? Or like, and it's ultimately what it comes question. down to is like increasing your own ability to earn money, whether yeah. through investing in your own business or investing in your own skills. Yeah. It's just way higher ROI than the 7% returns you'll get by investing in the top 500 companies in the US. 100%. The ROI of you is infinite. The ROI of an investment is capped. Um, and so I think you want to invest to beat inflation. I mean, that's originally why we have investing is that the cost, you know, the price of money decreases every single year due to the government. And so we have to have some sort of investing so that we our money doesn't get eaten away by inflation. Um, that's what we should expect. Seven to ten percent per year would be great if we could do that continuously. Anything above and beyond it, unless you're actively involved in the investment, which changes the game, uh, isn't going to make you rich. It's just going to make you beat inflation. <laughs> All right, next up, we have some genuinely life-changing advice from Nicholas Cole, who has made millions of dollars by writing on the internet. I think this skill is ridiculously important because leveling up my writing was the main thing that allowed my YouTube channel to succeed. Leveling up my writing is what helped me write this book and everything that we do in our business to make the money that we do and hopefully have the impact that we have is downstream of writing. And so this is Cole offering advice on how to become a successful writer. You can make money as a writer. It's just you need to differentiate between are you saying, I want to write this, and then you go out into the world and go, who's willing to buy it? Or are you starting in the opposite direction and go, what do you need? What, what answer are you looking for? What question do you have? And can I provide it? And that was the, as soon as I realized that, everything changed. And I went from the fallacy of, I'm going to sit down and write what I want to write about. Now I have to go hustle it right? With yep. starting in the inverse. Who's yeah. who's the reader? What do they want? I was doing a session for our YouTuber Academy yesterday where, where you know, we were doing like a little Q&A and people are, people always struggle with this question of what's my niche? Mm -hmm. uh, and one way of approaching it is what do I want to make videos about? But the more successful way of approaching it is what do other people want and how can I serve them? <laughs> yes. And just kind of thinking like an entrepreneur rather than thinking like a hobbyist who's like, hey, I, I have all these, I have these hundred different interests. I want to make videos about productivity and entrepreneurship and personal development. Like, okay, as do 5 million other people. Like, right. <laughs> come on, where is, where is there a market? Where is, where is there something that we can serve someone? Yeah, I mean, the, the hardest thing I think to wrap your head around is your niche is not about you. Your niche is about your reader or your viewer or your listener. So where I notice a lot of writers go wrong is they spend their whole lives just going, well, I want to write what I want to write about. And you should. That's great, but also you are in service of the reader. And I think a really important thing to differentiate between is if you want to write whatever you want to write about, go for it. Like that's the beauty of the internet, that's the beauty of self-publishing, that's the, you have that freedom. But don't 2 seconds later then complain when the external result isn't what you want. Right? So someone goes, "I want to write what I want to write about." And then they go, and why aren't I going viral? Or where's all the money? Or why don't I have a gazillion followers? Right. And that's because you're not being clear about whether you're doing this for yourself or you're doing it for an external outcome. And I think you need to be honest and go, I want to write to make money. Great. 
make decisions that unlock that outcome. You know, whereas there's a lot of things that I want to write in my lifetime that I want to write. And I'm not confused about the fact that those things are probably, maybe, they might be a home run, but probably not going to make as much money as if I start with the end in mind and go, well, what does that person need and how can I use writing to serve that need? You know what I mean? There's this famous artist. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this. Like, um, I think uh, Aziz Ansari was at a party and he asked this really big musician who releases stuff like every like 10 years or something like that. And oh, I'm blanking on the name, but but essentially he asked him like, hey man, how like it seems like you just kind of do whatever you want. You just release music when you want. It seems like you're not caught up in the trappings of the industry. Like, how do you do it? And the guy was like, it's easy. I just make a lot less money. <laughs> and it's like, you know, the, the, the way we teach this on our YouTuber Academy is I always say to people that there is a spectrum between I'm doing this as a hobby and I'm doing this as a business. Yes. Where are you on that spectrum from like zero to 10? And everyone says 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. Otherwise they wouldn't be in the course. Whereas when we do our free workshops, everyone's like two, three, four is like mm -hmm. the average. But then the same people that are like, I want to do this 10 out of 10 as a business are still also kind of still struggling with this thing around like, oh, but I have all these 10 different passions and I want to make videos about all of them. Whereas you wouldn't make a, a grocery store, well, a, a, sh a shop trying to, oh, tr a shop trying to sell absolutely everything because you'd be competing with Amazon. You'd be finding a niche where you know there's, there is a market for the thing and just focusing on that, even if you have these other 10 interests. Yeah. I mean, the example I love, we use this in, uh, in our course ship 30, which is we ask the question, what's Ryan holidays niche. And immediately the whole chat all blows up with the same one word, right? Everyone says stoicism. And then I go, okay, great. How do you know that? Right? Like, why did you type that? And we don't realize that we associate niches with people because they educate us to do that. Right? It doesn't just happen. Like, the reason we associate stoicism with Ryan Holiday is because he writes book after book after book and he makes YouTube video after YouTube video that says stoicism. Right? We would not do that if every single thing he wrote or every video he created was a different topic. So I think that's point A. Point B is realizing that you can do both. I, I, it's a fallacy to think you're a one-dimensional person. You're not. We all have many interests. You can do more than one thing. Most people don't know that I have like, I don't even know, three poetry books published. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, right? <laughs> Most people don't know that. And that's fine because I'm not confused about which thing I do because I want to do it and which thing I do that is my moneymaker. That's the whole question is you want to make the niche. If, if your goal is how do I make money, right? You want to make the niche your moneymaker. But that doesn't mean you can't do other things. You can. Just don't expect those things to have the same external outcome as your moneymaker, right? And I think remembering that gives you so much freedom and it allows you to do all the things that you want to do. And you aren't confused about what to optimize to make sure that you can still put food on the table. Now, continuing on the theme of wealth building and financial independence, which, you know, we've done surveys of a podcast. It's the topic that you guys most want to hear about. And sometimes people are like, well, you spend too much time talking about money. But honestly, we're all about helping people build a life they love. And money is honestly probably the single biggest obstacle to that path. But we're now going to hear from business coach Robin Waite about how to price your business. And there was a lot of takeaways I took away from this that we've actually directly applied to our own business since then. 
just out of curiosity, if you had to charge, I don't know, let's say an hourly rate for each session mm. over those 12 weeks, what would that, how much would you charge? That's where I, I feel like there's a, a, a bit of a, an, a, a hurdle here in my mind because like, for example, I know I could make 40 pounds an hour by taking an extra shift at the hospital. And so I feel comfortable charging 40 pounds an hour for that. But when it comes to the relationship stuff, like I don't have any qualifications. Yes, I've helped my friends, but I feel I'd feel really, you know, ch charging 40 pounds an hour is charging it to the healthcare system. It's not charging it to a person. So I'd feel really weird if someone asked me yeah. for my help and I would charge them 40 pounds an hour. I I'll share a little story with you. So I, I met Mrs. Waite, Charlotte, uh, through a website called Muddy Matches uh, 11 years ago. Muddy Matches? Muddy Matches. Muddy Matches. Yeah, because we live out in the Cotswolds, so it's a bit, um, oh, wow. okay. yeah, very country. <laughs> um so um, how much would I pay to have had the opportunity to meet my future wife through online dating? And I wasn't particularly good at the dating game, let's be fair. Mm. Um, you can't put a price on that. And so I think where you kind of have looked inside yourself and kind of looked into your own value system there, and that I'm not going to give you a therapy session now about around that, but um, it's, it's common what people do is they kind of base their prices based on their own value system. But what you're actually doing there is you're making a decision on behalf of everybody else in your world, Wait, all of you your mean? clients. So when you say, well, I think I'm only worth 40 pounds an hour, you're kind of making a decision on behalf of all of your clients, which might may or may not be serving them justly. So think about it this way. There are things where maybe if you haven't paid enough for it, do you really value it that much? Whereas actually, if you've paid a lot for something, do you covet it, cherish it, look after it, take care of it, mm. think yeah, whether if you have capitalistic expensive cars and things like that, like you get the slightest ding, you're like, oh my God, it's just ding my car sort of thing. So you really covet things that you're actually investing in. So when it comes to coaching especially, it's much better to be at the more expensive end of it because then what you get is clients who are invested in the process. They're more likely to do the things which you're encouraging them to do. And as a result of that, they're more likely to get better results, right? So if you're charging five to 10K for this transformation program- Five to 10K? Yep. My we'll goodness. On, we'll come on to that, okay. <laughs> okay, so I'm just, this is part of the coaching process. Yeah. So if okay. you let's say you're charging five to 10K for this coaching process, you're gonna get very committed clients, but also you don't need that many clients each to work with each year in order to build a sustainable, profitable coaching practice. 10 clients a year, 20 clients a year, and, and actually you've got a six-figure income. Bloody hell. Right? It would take me 10 years of training in medicine to even approach a six-figure income. Yeah. So, and this, this is where a lot of people get business wrong. So um, I want to focus on, let's, let's stick with where we're going with your coaching business yeah. for the time being, okay. though, coaching practice. So six-month transformation, we've got this intensive 12-week period. Yeah. You were thinking, well, 40 pounds an hour. I was thinking I was thinking like 10 quid an hour because I'm like, what the hell do I know about this? Okay, stuff? well, yeah. okay, even at 10 pounds an hour. So for yeah. a weekly session, say, which is an hour plus all the different touch points. But you, you're talking there of like charging like, I don't know, 200 quid for 200 pounds for like a program, six month program, right? Yeah. If you think about it. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cheap. Okay. Yeah. So this is where we, we break into like people see pricing as um, binary. Okay. okay. So binary thinking. So it's either yes or no, I'm in or I'm out. It's too cheap or it's too expensive. Okay. Yep. Right. And at 200 pounds, I think you probably, well, your face said that's too cheap. I can't believe I was going to charge that much for my time. I'm worth more than that. <laughs> yeah. But you don't more than that. As a yeah. Doctor. I can make more, I can make that in one shift. And then when I said five to 10 K, your eyes popped out of your head, <laughs> you know, across the table. And, and so, but what we've got now is we've got 4,800 numbers between 200 pounds and 5,000 pounds. Okay. okay. Yeah. And sure. there's there's a, a a future 
version of Ali that's again selling his coaching um program for 5k maybe not today but in the future yeah so we we can do okay. do you want to, we, we can do you've seen me do this before i think ali but the jedi mind trick do you want to play a jedi let's play the jedi mind play, trick yeah. play the jedi mind cool. trick game okay so i'm gonna start at 200 pounds and the reason i do this exercise well i'll, I'll explain it afterwards okay, okay. so we're going to figure out um what level you need to be selling this at as of today if you're going to step out and work with your first coaching client okay yeah. so 200 pounds 500 for, for the six months yeah for the six months 500 pounds 800 pounds 1200 pounds <laughs> already crikey 1200 quid so, yeah so you're so you're you're everybody has a poker face right for whatever so whenever <laughs> yeah. so initially when you were trying to figure this out how much you should charge and the structure of your program and what am i worth you're trying to solve it intellectually yeah okay and we all know you have without going too woo-woo you have more than one brain okay yeah um our subconscious brain is very intuitive and so um that's why intellectually you were like 200 pounds but when we started to look into your subconscious of where you actually truly value yourself you're like well 1200 mm. well it was between 800 and 1200 pounds where poker face came out and <laughs> yeah. you couldn't keep a straight face and i knew that that's where your subconscious was telling yeah, you yeah even now you as you say 1200 i'm just yeah. like I, do, I find myself just not being yeah. able to keep a straight face so was 800 comfortable you're not disagreeing with me. So so what we want to do is we want to, we don't want to stay in comfort zone because we don't actually learn that much in there. You've got yep. to stretch yourself a little bit. So my advice would actually be if you were going to go out and sell this yep. hypothetical coaching program, sure. you go and pitch 10 to 20 people at okay. 1,200 pounds yep. for that six-month transformation process. And I, I know, because I've done this with 700, over 700 business owners now, um, the pricing thing that is get people to elevate their prices. I know that um, a good conversion rate for most service businesses like coaching is somewhere around about one in five to one in three. Let's round the numbers, call it 20 to 40%. Really? So if, yeah. So if you pitch that 10 feels people- feels enormously high. Uh, it's, it's not actually. It's 20%. So one in five is actually quite, it's quite low. A lot of people think it's quite low. But like how, you, if I if I think of like, people that I know at work, they, they, they wouldn't pay a thousand pounds, 1200 quid for like Maybe a they're month. not your ideal audience. Ah, yeah. okay. Cause how do I find my ideal audience? Or oh, are we going to come to that? <laughs> but we, we can do, but, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, the other way to look at it as well is, um, again, people approach this from the wrong way around. They go, I'm going to build my product and then hope that people come and buy it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what we actually want to do is we want to come from the other, the other end of the spectrum. Okay. So, if your goal was to um, make 100K from your coaching business. 100K? Damn. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, but let's, let, okay. What, what would your goal be? If you were starting from scratch, you're going to give this a shot. If I could make 2K a month, so that's like 24K 2K a month, year. 24K yeah. a year. Yeah. Okay. So now what we do is we take 24K, we divide it by 1,200 pounds, and it's roughly 20 clients. Yeah. 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 If I had 20 clients. Could you service 20 clients? Do you have the capacity to work with 20 clients over the course of a year? So if it's weekly calls, that would be 20 hours a week. 20 hours a week. Yeah, that's quite a lot. It's a lot coaching. That's a lot, yeah. Very energetic. I don't know if I'd be, I'd have the time to do that. Yeah, with, so how with many could job. you, do you think, work with? Okay, let's think about this. So, you know, I work Monday to Friday and some weekends and night shifts and stuff. So if I had flexibility on one, I could book them because my roto is weird. I think I could do five Five a week, five okay. calls a week, probably, because that's like one a day on average. Yeah. So, so what we've done is this: this called capacity-based pricing, right? So you work oh. out your your end goal for your business. Yep. What's what? How much money do I want to make? Basically, it's very simple terms. Okay. And we divide it by the price that we've kind of come 
to a conclusion this is roughly what I think we should be charging. Yeah. But now we've got a gap. So if you only get five clients concurrently, um, which probably means like 10 clients throughout the year because you're going to get a little bit of overlap, bit of churn, some clients yeah. leaving, yeah. they meet their future wife, husband, whatever, yeah. and they don't need your help anymore. Mm. Maybe they come back when they've got relationship problems further down the line. I don't mm. know. Um, but so 10 clients say, so actually what we've established is that you're going to fall short of your financial goal because you don't have the capacity to service £24,000 worth of business. Okay. Nice. So good point. Yep. The real price Tam, point. Tam thought of that. <laughs> yeah. So th- so this is so capacity has a, ma- a got your goal is important. Capacity has a major part to play, especially if you're setting this up as like a side hustle yep. alongside a full-time job. Yeah. Um so now we've got a, a difficult decision here. We go, well, twelve hundred pounds, I know that was going to be a bit of a stretch, but if somebody can afford twelve hundred, could they afford two and a half K? Probably. Over six months, don't forget. If I could get people at two and a half K, that would mean I would only need 10 clients in the whole year. Yes. And you could go down to three days a week. And that, yeah, I feel emotional just thinking about it. And I'm not even like faking here. I'm just like, <laughs> just sort of imagining myself in that position. Yeah. <laughs> if I break the fourth wall a moment, I'm just like, oh my goodness, that would actually be transformational. But I have all these fears coming up around like charging 2,500 and even how do I find these 10 forget people? About, uh, forget about the money. Forget about the money. Can you, okay. can you visualize yourself working with those people and transform their lives? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Can you, do you feel confident enough in your ability to deliver like such remarkable results for them that you'd have no problem refunding them if they had, a, if they didn't get, if they didn't meet the love of their life and they say, they, Ali, this is rubbish. You didn't, you didn't find the love of my life. I want a refund. Would you have any problem refunding them? If they did the work, then no. If they didn't do the work, then, well, they, they didn't do the work. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, yeah. let's assume they did the work. You threw everything at it. Yeah. Best will in the world. Didn't get the results. No, they can have a full refund. Full I, refund. I don't want their money yeah. if they don't get the result. Yeah, 100%. So, so there's no, you de-risked it. There's no jeopardy here. What do you mean I've de-risked? Oh, okay. Like if someone doesn't, if someone doesn't get the result, yeah. I can just give them, give them, give them their money back. Yeah. Provided they've, and this is where the contract comes in. Okay. So the contract st- states, you've got to show up to all of the calls. You've yeah. got to do all of the homework. You've yeah. got to go on the dates, et cetera, et cetera. And if they do that, and if they do that, I mean, they're basically going to find they can, find a relationship. Yeah. And if they don't, they go, then I'll happily yeah. refund them, sure. This episode is very kindly brought to you by Huel. I've been using Huel. I've been a paying customer of Huel since 2017, since my fifth year of medical school when I first discovered it. And basically what it is, if you haven't heard of it, is that it is a meal in a shake. It's got the perfect balance of carbs and fiber and proteins and fat, and it contains 26 different vitamins and minerals. All you do is add water or milk to the powder. Usually I use water. You can shake it up or you can blend it. I prefer to blend. And then it becomes a fantastic option if you're like me and you're kind of busy, and so you don't really have time for breakfast or lunch. My favorite version is the Huel Black Edition. It's absolutely sick. For 400 calories, 40 grams of protein for 400 calories. I'm trying to get hench, and it's actually pretty hard to find something that has such a high protein content for such a low calorie trade-off. And so I really like using the Huel Black Edition to start my mornings off. It's vegan, it's gluten-free, it's lactose-free. The Black Edition is available in nine flavors. My favorite is salted caramel. And I wouldn't recommend having every single meal Huel because that gets a bit annoying after a while, but it's absolutely fantastic as like one of the meals of the day, especially if you're busy and you're gonna kind of default to something unhealthy otherwise. It's also very affordable, so it actually works out to £1.68 per meal for a 400 calorie meal, which is just incredible value and actually way cheaper than other generic protein shakes on the market. And it saves a bunch of time because it's so quick and easy to make. And so it's particularly exciting that they're sponsoring the podcast. And actually, we had the founder of Huel, Julian Hearn, who was on the very first season of the podcast. That was a sick episode that got so many rave reviews as well. Anyway, if you're interested in trying out Huel, then head over to huel.com forward slash deep dive. And if you use that URL, A, it really helps me out. But B, you also get a free t-shirt and also a free shaker that comes with your order. So go to huel.com forward slash deep dive. That'll also be linked down in the video description or the show notes. And thank you so much, Heal, for sponsoring this episode.
This episode is very kindly brought to you by Trading212. Now, people ask me all the time for advice about investing because I've made a bunch of videos about it on the YouTube channel. And my advice for most people is generally invest in broad stock market index funds, which is exactly what you can do completely for free with Trading212. It's a great app that lets you trade stocks and funds and ETFs and foreign exchange if you really want to. And one of the great things about the app is that if you're new to the world of investing, you can actually invest with fake money. You don't have to put real money in. They've got a practice mode where you invest fake money and then it actually tracks what the market is doing in real time. So you can see, had I invested £100 into this thing, what would my return have been X weeks or X months further down the line? Once you've got some comfort with that, then it's super easy to deposit money into your trading tube into account. You can use Apple Pay like I do initially, or you can use a direct bank transfer. And then once the money is in your trading 212 account, then you can invest it in basically whatever you want. Now, if you're based in the UK, you might be familiar with the concept of an ISA, which is an individual savings account, which is basically a tax-free wrapper that you can put money in. You can put 20,000 pounds in every year, up to 20,000 pounds, and it resets every April. And then all that money can grow and it's completely tax-free for the rest of your life. And if you want to sign up for an ISA, you can sign up for one completely for free, also on Trading212. So if you haven't yet filled up your ISA allowance or at least put some money into your ISA for this year, that might be a good step forward. Also, very excitingly, there's a new feature that they've added to the app, which is a daily interest on your uninvested cash. These interest rates may go up or down over time as the economic environment changes, but the cool thing is that you get paid out every single day if you're into that sort of thing. The app also lets you auto-invest, which is a great thing because then you can automatically invest a percentage of your paycheck into the thing every month. And so if you haven't yet started with investing and you want to give it a go, then you can download the app on the App Store and if you use the coupon code ALI, A-L-I, that will give you a totally free share worth up to £100. It's available on iPhone and Android and you can check it out by typing in Trading212 into your respective App Store. So thank you so much Trading212 for sponsoring this episode. All right, changing gears for money, we now have Dr. Alex George, who is a fellow medical doctor and who also specializes in public health advice as it relates to mental health. And so this is Dr. Alex George and I discussing how to set boundaries with other people. And a great catchphrase, and I talk about in the Mind Manual, about having ways to deal with um, situations where you need boundaries. So I've been six months sober or six months alcohol-free as of yesterday, which I'm proud of. Nice. Um Important to say, I don't have addiction. I'm speaking from perspective. I made a health choice. I don't. I don't compare myself to those that suffer from addiction. It is very much, you know, um, something that I decided to do because I felt that I'd be happier without it and healthier and so on. But it's still a challenge. It's still hard not to drink because the hmm. society is kind of constructed around the consumption of alcohol almost in every different facet and way. And ironically, if you're trying to be productive, probably the biggest thing that will be stopping you achieving your goals would be alcohol you know almost for every single person if you drink alcohol and you want to do one thing to improve your productivity outcomes your health your relationships your fitness anything just stop drinking mm. it's one of the best things that you can do but people ask you to drink all the time so having an anchor phrase is really useful and sometimes even just an awareness of how you're going to respond to that like people go and say alex do you want to drink i just say i don't drink but thank you or I go say, would you like a drink? I would say at the bar, so we are at a restaurant. What would you like to drink? I'd say, I'd like to have um, a whatever name of the drink it might be. It might be sparkling water or I want whatever it is. Don't allow for space of conversation if you don't want to have that mm. around drinking. And if someone questions you and says, oh, do you not drink? Say, oh, no, I don't drink. If you don't create space for the conversation, it doesn't happen. Some people will be curious because they're so be curious and say, oh, that's really interesting. How come you stop drinking? And then you can have that conversation if you'd like to. But have boundaries over what you share. You don't have yeah. to explain away everything. In the same way, if someone says, um, Ali, I'd love you to come to uh, the re this restaurant next week. We're going to have a dinner. Say, so, oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate asking, but not this time. We'll do it another time. Or just no thank you. You mm. don't have to give excuses. Mm. And often when you give excuses, it just feels so 
yeah. inauthentic. It's not authentic. Just say you don't want to. It's fine. Your time is precious. And it yeah. is, the key word is your time. So spend it in the way that you want to. But a great anchor phrase I find for work stuff, and, and I don't know what you use, but you know, I get asked to do lots of different things. If I am absolutely certain in my gut that it's the right thing to do, I'll say yes to it. But if there is even a shadow of doubt that I think this might not be the right thing to do, I need to think on it. I say, ask me in 24 hours. You know, Abby sat in the room here, my my um, EA, and I will say to ask me in 24 hours. She puts it 24 hours next to whatever the question is, yep. and she asks me again tomorrow. It allows your brain time to think about, am I making a reactionary decision? Yep. Or, am I, or am I actually uncomfortable with this? Another piece of advice I'd give is never make, never make an important decision. In fact, if you can avoid it, any decision from a position where you've just achieved something or succeeded or won something or something you've really lost or something bad that's happened. Mm. If you're on a high of success, you'll often take on more things because your endorphins are pumping. You're like, yep. oh, do you know what? Um, I've done this master's. Let's do a PhD. Yep. <laughs> Don't make a decision once you've just achieved something. Yep. Also, never make a decision when you're reeling from a loss. When things have gone wrong, we have a context of like, again, going back to that point, this is forever, the suffering, this pain, yeah. this awfulness is forever. You're much more likely to make a bad decision. Allow breathing spaces. Most things do not have to be decided in the moment you're in. Other than what kind of coffee do you want to drink when you're stood in the cafe? Most things can have time. You don't have to commit mm. to things too quickly. Yeah, the boundary thing is something I, I struggle with so much. Um, Why do you struggle with that? Like, I thought I th I'm surprised you say that because, given how much you talk about this, I'm surprised. But it's very honest of you to share it. But I'm surprised yeah. that you struggle with. It. I think because uh, I have a people pleasing tendency, mm. and so whenever someone asks me something, if they're asking me in person, or even often if they're asking me on message, and it's someone that I know in some way personally. I will feel this strong compulsion to say yes to the thing. Can I give you a phrase that will help? Please, I would love, yeah, any tips. I'm at capacity. It's one of the best phrases you can use yeah. that I think is pretty well understood by everyone. Yeah. And it can be taken in any people understanding, go, they're either capacity in terms of they don't feel they have the energy for it, yeah. they are too busy, they're just politely saying, I can't. Yeah. And I use that phrase, and I've had DMs from people, I just say, I'm really sorry, that sounds brilliant. I don't even say so, I say it's a lie, I don't say I'm sorry anymore. I say, you know, thanks so much for asking, I really appreciate it, but I'm at capacity at the moment. Nice. Or I'm at capacity. Oh, I would phrase. use it because you can't be offended by that. How can you be offended by someone saying they're at capacity? They, yeah, at capacity phrase. means you can't take more. And I think people really understand that. I found no one has ever come back and said, oh, well, da 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 No one has ever done that. Mm. I'm at capacity. And you know what? There you go. You said about your therapy. That's a great thing to work. Why are you a people pleaser? Yeah, all of that stuff. I think where probably, you, where, yeah. where do you, Why do you think you're a people pleaser? I've been reading a, a good book called No More Mr. Nice Guy, uh, which is very good. It's written by some therapist who deals with sort of people-pleasing tendencies in men. And that book just speaks to me so much because he talks about uh, how, how a lot of uh, early childhood experiences or can contribute to a child feeling as if they're not enough as they are and they have to perform or they do something or get that perfect grade or whatever. Mm. And then that cycle of perfectionism becomes part of their being. And so when someone asks you for something, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I want to be a good person. A good person says yes to things and is not selfish. And any amount of self-care gets read as selfish and selfish is seen as bad. Yeah. And so all of these different patterns add up to create this feeling of, mm. oh, yeah, I'm going to say yes, even though I don't really want to say yes to the thing. It's uh, it's something that is shared by a lot of people, actually, I think. And, um, you know, you're right. It's so much of it's from childhood. I mean, I, I had parents, um, I think it's fair to say my dad was quite strict. Mm. Um, I was the first... I was the first child. I think my parents were kind of 
from that era and I grew up in I guess 90s early 2000s when I think it was kind of strict parenthood it was that kind of time um success means doing well at school and yeah I had the same feeling I think you know our our perfectionism wanting to be the best anything from the best but the best is not great and worst of all it's actually terrible if you're not the best and I very much unlearned those things but it's taken a lot of work and I still come those tendencies often still come back at times and I have to go oh actually where does that come from why Mm. am I feeling that way and actually can make you um it can make you feel two things number one that if you don't agree to do something because someone's asked you to do it that you're a bad person yeah. you're a failure but also it can make you really start comparing to others and thinking well if i'm not doing as much as that person or that person that i'm not successful mm. i mean one of the things i think is fascinating is that we slightly not patronizingly but we slightly go oh social media yeah about um Comparison culture and social media just about body images and six-pack. It isn't, is it? You speak to a lot of um, professionals. They'll go, oh, yeah, but, you know, I feel comparison. You know, I had a psychiatrist tell me a few months ago, um, I obviously won't say who it was, said they find it really hard and find it triggering online because they see other consultant psychiatrists presenting more papers yep. or doing more conferences or writing or you know getting published in this article so you know we are a little bit like oh it's about flash cars and six packs yeah there are it is you know comparison is about every metric of comparison Hum- to be human is to compare so we'll compare anything um yeah but actually it's a huge thing in in, in the workspace as well yeah. productivity i mean there's a huge balance of productivity and what's productive what's toxic what's yeah. You know, if you're sharing doing a run at five thirty in the morning, yeah. are you sharing that because you're celebrating within yourself, or you're just sharing because you're showing other people that you're doing mm-hmm. a five thirty in the morning? And what impact does that have on other people? And I'm not saying it's wrong. I mean, there's so many ways, to, and I share things like, okay, I shared that my children's book won children children's book of the year. Why am I sharing that? You could mm-hmm. dig into all these things. You know, I'm very proud that I, I, I share I, that I that I did that, and so on. But there is a the, it, the, we have to think a little bit sometimes about why we're posting stuff. But also, if we're seeing something, if we're reacting negatively, why are we doing that? Because sometimes, you know, someone's posted something with the best intentions, but it's had a negative effect on you. Mm. That person's not trying to have a negative effect on you. You've got to work out why. Where does your reaction come from? Yeah. Is it because you're now beating yourself up because you didn't work harder on something? Yeah. When actually you're already doing so much. I, I think that that's really important. Part of boundaries in life is around all that stuff. But it's also social media. I mean, the average person spends between three and four hours a day on social media. That's a huge amount of time. Make sure you are, you'll know why you're using it. It's the first thing. Like, like you know, if it's to make yourself laugh, that is a valid reason. But just know what reason it is. It doesn't have to I'm using it to propel my business into stardom. It can just be when a giggle looking at cats that are done mm. whatever, cat videos, dog videos, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. Just know while you're using it. Don't get sucked into it. And also just be careful if you're having negative reactions to stuff, then you know, moderate who you follow, cull your following, you know, if yeah. you're following people that trigger you, don't follow them, like follow people that inspire you. Probably one of the biggest things I'll say, you know, how often do you do people open up their phones in the morning and get triggered by something, you know? Mm. Create boundaries. And finally, what's the point of all of this stuff? What's the point of making all this money and having a business and all this stuff if we can't share life with the people that matter most to us? And so this is a snippet of the conversation between me and Gemma Spegan, who is the host of the Psychology of Your Twenties podcast. And we're talking about how to maintain friendships when life gets super busy, especially as an adult. When we're in school or university, friendship galore, like you live next to people, everything's Mm, all good. So fun. But then people graduate, they get jobs, friends move away, everyone gets busy. And it seems like even if you're living in the same city, like I'm now living in London, like literally all of my friends, with the exception of a handful of uh, friends who are doctors who have moved to different parts of the world, um, 
all my friends are in London. And yet it still feels like I see my school friends once every six months, once a year, because even though we're, we're in London, just sort of getting the calendars to line up and schedules to line up and all that kind of stuff. Plus the fact that it usually needs one person to take the initiative. And if everyone's yeah. busy, no one does that. Have you got any tips or best practices or habits for um, maintaining or building new friendships post-university? Yes. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer you two here. Perfect. The first one is around those pre-existing relationships. I truly believe that you should be the person to take initiative. If you want something, if you want to see these people, if those relationships are kind of falling apart, like be be the person, be the person who takes initiative. It can take a lot of energy, but I'm that person in 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 my friendship groups and I'll do things like let's one of them is I do a Sunday dinner. So every Sunday when I'm in town, I say to anyone who lives in Sydney who I know, come for dinner. Just bring a bottle of wine, bring dessert, bring something and have a feed and just let me know like four hours in advance if you're coming along, bring partners, bring anyone. And that nice. Sunday dinner is actually such like is like the glue for some of my relationships. And not to say that like those people are only coming for the free food, but they're so busy that having a discreet day where I know that we're going to see each other actually is a lot easier for a lot of people to, to navigate with such busy lives. Um, so that's actually a, a, a tip. I wouldn't say a habit, but a tip. Um, if you can afford to do it, if you have the time, make the initiative, something like a Sunday dinner or like a Saturday brunch club is like a great kind of uh, activity to bring people together. And the the other habit that I think is really important is to be consistent in your hobbies and your activities if you're looking to make new friends. So I think this applies to a lot of people in their 20s. I moved to a new city um, like, like almost two years ago, a year and a half ago, and I left behind this whole community that I had. And I felt like I was starting from scratch. And the best thing that I did was invest time in consistently going to the same activities and the same hobbies week in, week out. And those were cycling classes and rock climbing. When you go to the same location and do the same thing in the same building, it's likely that the same people are going to be there. And it's likely that you already have something in common that you can bond over. And similarity we know is the biggest biggest determinant of friendship, similarity and proximity and then reciprocity. So you kind of already have those two down, right? Similarity, you're doing an activity that you know the people in that room already like. And proximity, you're going to see these people week in, week out if they also are showing up consistently at the activities that you're doing. I made so many friends that way because you start to become familiar faces in each other's lives. You strike up a conversation. Next thing you know, are you coming next week? Yeah, I am. We should get a coffee beforehand. Boom. Friendship. Nice. That's a, that's a really big habit that I, and a habit, but also a tip that I think is so valuable if you want to make new friends is to show up in the same places at the same time. And I'm sure that the, the people that you'll actually find yourself really being aligned to will be the people who are doing the same thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's such a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, I feel like one of the, one of the, one of the things about university and why people often end up making friends with the people that they live next to. It's just that proximity thing. Mm. And it's less about quality time and more about quantity time. Oh, yeah. And so showing up to the same activity. Like I, I started kickboxing lessons a few months ago, but I've really half-assed it and I haven't shown up to the group classes consistently. <laughs> and therefore, there's no chance I'm going to make friends with anyone there. But if I just showed up for like a few weeks in a row, chances are I would have made friends with at least one person there. And like, you know, they go to the pub afterwards and you join them. And then yeah. that's how friendships are formed. Yeah. Whereas, oh, I'm so I'm too busy this week because work. And I'm too busy that week because work. And I'm too busy that week because I've got other plans. 
now it makes it a lot harder to make friends in that specific setting. Yeah. Well, the other one that's really good is um, sports games. So like sports games, I do, that sounds so naive, but matches, but uh, sports teams. So like I joined my futsal team, like a futsal team. That was great. Wait, a what team? A futsal. It's like indoor soccer. Futsal. Yeah, it's indoor soccer in oh. Australia. Oh, cool. Do you guys not have that here? I mean, we call it indoor football, but oh, like, indoor, yeah, oh, we don't football. have a, a oh, proper yeah. name for it. Yeah, wait, that's, we don't have football in Australia. No, you call it soccer. Yeah, it's nice. soccer, <laughs> indoor soccer. <laughs> so that was great, and I also think another habit it, it, that it's also aligned to this idea of making friends um, that I think anyone needs to form, whether you are in your teens or your twenties or your thirties, that is active listening. Active listening is such an attractive quality in any friend, any partner, any workmate, any acquaintance. So you want to possess that as well. And I think that it's a skill that takes time. So practicing actually listening to what people are saying, acknowledging how their body is reacting to you, trying to, and it comes naturally over time. I think we're actually not inherently great listeners this in this generation because we're so bombarded by all this stimulus and all these things going on in our brain and in our environment that sometimes these kinds of conversations, the one that we're having right now, um, can it can be very hard to engage in them. So practice active listening, practice actually making eye contact with someone, trying to imagine what they're, what they're feeling, what they're thinking, and engage with what they're saying to you and reciprocate that. I think that when we talk about relationships in our 20s, whatever that may be, being an active listener makes you um, an attractive person to have a relationship with, someone Mm -hmm. who's enjoyable to be around and it just causes all of our relationships to to flourish. Mm. Any tips for active listening? Um, So I I think that I realized that I wasn't a great active listener and um, someone gave me this tip was to really look at like, I'm going to act, well, you're not talking, but I'm going to pretend that I'm active listening to you right now is to really like look at someone and be, and and really try and sit in their words and picture their words and imagine what they're saying. So instead of just being like, oh, this is just stuff that's coming into my ear, like really imagine that you're in their stories with them. And that visualization will it will make you more engaged, a eh? but it will make you seem more engaged mm-hmm. because you are. Um, the other thing to do, I think, active listening is not just about what's coming out verbally; it's also about someone's body, and really taking time to acknowledge. Okay, I we all kind of understand various body cues. Actually, recognize them and pick up on how's this person feeling, and can I make them more comfortable or? Um, how am I acting right now? And is that making them uncomfortable or is it making them feel safe? So all of the, those two kind of things to to understand and, and to get further into what someone else is telling you, I think is important. And, and it is just a skill, I think. Mm. Yeah. One, one, uh, one thing I was researching for my book was, you know, what are the differences between energizing relationships and draining relationships? I love this concept. Um, and one of the key things that came up in in the in the studies that I was looking at was um, the idea of uh, energizing responses. Mm. So, for example, if someone shares news, then there's sort of four different ways to respond to that. And yeah. the two main axes for that are, is it active or passive? And is it constructive or destructive? Mm. So active constructive is where we kind of want to be for the most energizing relationships, which is, you know, you, you say you've just run a half marathon or whatever, and an active constructive response might be, oh my God, that's incredible. 
tell me more about how did it feel? And it's mm. like I'm building on it and asking you to share more. That's so good. A, a passive constructive response would be, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Passive. I mean, it's constructive in that I haven't like torn you down for it. But yeah. it's not that energizing. It's sort of neutral at best. A passive destructive response would be um, kind of, oh, cool. But let me tell you about the thing that I did, where it's yeah. like kind of the self-centered thing. And then an active destructive response is a total dick, where someone's like, well, that's not such a big deal, like blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah. Like, why would you think you should do that? You're going to ruin your knees. That would just be a completely unhelpful response. Yeah. And shifting more towards energizing interactions, active constructive responses to things. There's like genuine evidence from like psychology studies that people who do that are seen as more energizing, more charismatic, more enjoyable to be around than people that respond in any of the other three ways. It's so powerful, isn't it? And it's um, the one that you said, uh, it's active, uh, no, passive constructive. Is that it? Where someone's like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Isn't that the worst? Mm. I honestly think that that's worse than someone being like, oh, cool, but guess what I did? Mm. I, like, and especially when you share news with with um, friends or family, and I think those are the people that we love the most and we trust the most, and we want them to be like really in our corner. But then you have to remember that, the, the reaction that you want from someone else, you need to give them as well. So yeah. anytime someone gives you really great news, like you need, like you should be genuinely excited for them if they're someone that you care about or someone that you like or someone that you know. I think that's so valuable. Just reciprocating yeah. good energy from the people that you want in your life is so powerful in our 20s. All right, that's it for the roundup. And that's the official end of season six of the Deep Dive podcast. I really hope you got some value from some of the episodes in this season, or maybe even from the back catalog, because a lot of the episodes that we've released in previous seasons are still very relevant today. In fact, all of them basically are. I'd love for you to join our free Telegram community, the Deep Divers, if you're potentially interested. And if you happen to be watching this on YouTube, I would love for you to leave a comment down below if you're still here. And firstly, thank you for watching. Um, but I'd love for you to leave a comment down below on this YouTube video sharing what's one thing that you really like about the podcast and what's one thing you'd like to really see more of. That really, really, really helps us figure out what guests to invite on for the next seasons, how to structure the episodes. So we really want to hear more from you guys who are very kind enough to watch and listen to the podcast to help us figure out how do we make this even better. So that's it for me for now. And hopefully we'll see you in the next season.